the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week. Episode 113, recorded Friday, October 18th, 2013. What's your number? Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. It's time for AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. The Cardinals are in the NLCS, and I've lost my brain for the week. Um, with us uh, in studio is Michael Drainer. He does something with Sennheiser Technology. Say hello, Michael. Hello. <laughs> we make the world sound better. That's Is that your tagline? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Sure. The pursuit of perfect sound, actually. Well, then it's not your tagline. You should get docked for that. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Kelly Perkins. Um, you, if you don't know your own trademark, I know you, my own trademark. Right. <laughs> Kelly Perkins uh, is the marketing and communications manager at a very fine American company, unlike Mr. German Boy over there. Uh, Badio, how very are you? Fine German company. How are I you? I am Ken? wonderful. Good. Uh, I actually saw some of your guys uh, a couple weeks ago at a uh, traveling road show here in St. Louis. And got to uh, it was very your uh, your it's not a static camera because you can zoom it in and out, um, but your is it HD one shot. Uh, zoom shot. Zoom shot. It was close. It's a very cool, very cool stuff. Uh, also with us is Philip H Cordell. The H is for high fi. Uh, <laughs> he is the <laughs> AV professional, uh, and he also works for M three uh, Technologies in Nashville. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Tim. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. And uh, the actual journalist on the panel who makes all of us, uh, you know, we, we pale in comparison to his uh, effective uh, journalistic skills. His <laughs> name is Craig McCormick. He is an evil Boston's Red Sox fan, and he's the editor at large for Commercial Integrator. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm actually hoping for a repeat of 2004, just so you know. Really? I am. It's called Vengeance. <laughs> Oh, I thought you meant the end. I thought no, you meant no. the ending. No, too. I just mean the actual series. You know, no, just oh, retribution. Right. Uh, <laughs> this week we're going to talk about uh, a couple of things. First of all, a buddy of ours, Sam Malik, uh, who's finally gotten back um, on on the horse. He works for a company now called ASK Proxima. Maybe you've heard of them. <laughs> they they are retooling uh, rather quickly here. Um, also going to talk about Sony. What if? CE products were free. An interesting question uh, by an old friend of ours, Julie Jacobson, and uh, and CE Pro, and also talk about. Um, sorry, my brain's just totally gone today. Uh, talk about um, audio experts uh, calling it quits. But first, the most emailed story to me personally uh, before it actually broke this week is the one we're going to start off with: Mitsubishi Electric. Exits projector and public display market. Everybody who is shocked by this, raise your hand. I'm raising mine because I was absolutely floored. Um, the reason I say that is because I have I have a number of, of, of colleagues um, who I work in education. They work in education. We all kind of work in education together. 
they were looking and actually actively talking with Mitsubishi and their reps about uh, doing a, a large um, installation of their laser uh, projectors. First part of next year, first quarter of next year. And so when the emails started coming in, the first one was from this very uh, college. And he's like, holy cow, are you kidding me? We've worked with these guys for six months on this project, and now they're dumping. Uh, Phil, we'll, t- we'll start with you. Are you shocked at that Mitsubishi's getting out? I was pretty surprised, man. The, the company that I work for, we actually formed around uh, one very large sports bar chain. And did you know probably 89 installations over the course of 10 years, and at the heart of every one of those was multiple, multiple uh, XD 490s and just different Mitsubishi models. Uh, so yeah, man, I was pretty shocked, um, and I hope this does not affect the rally car division because that's what I'm into. Right. But I don't think it will. I right. think the rally cars are fine. Do they make the money? Re- <laughs> I think so, I, okay. and I think the rest of Mitsubishi is going to be okay. But uh, but yeah, man, it's pretty surprising. I mean, it, it certainly took us uh, off guard. You know, because now we've got to look at, at new gear to spec. Yeah, yeah, you so. do. And and also, you know, if 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 you are a Mitsubishi dealer and that's that's your bread and butter for projectors, where do you guys like you go? I mean, where have you guys talked about that at all this week? Uh, you know, we actually haven't. Uh, we're a pretty big NEC house as well, mm-hmm. and a lot of Epson. Uh, so there's just going to be some opportunities for other manufacturers, and frankly, other manufacturers that focus almost solely on displays. You know, that's that's the I guess the downside to being a huge corporation with your fingers in all kinds of markets is that eventually, uh, you know, as the article said, it's just not going to make sense because of competition to, to play in certain markets. So, you know, I, I hate that it happened, but, but uh, you know, it's bound to happen when you get when you get huge like that. Some things aren't going to survive. Craig, where I mean, you obviously have more connections than, than I do. Are you hearing maybe a call, you know, the, the ultimate cause of this? Like what's, what drove this decision besides the fact that they're just, you know, obviously they're not making money but what what's the cause here yeah i th- i think it's sounds like it's as simple as that it's just not not a money maker for them and they decided to focus their attention and time on on something a little bit different and maybe you know make a little money in 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 that space and like this article says you know they looked at every option before before uh before bailing out but uh it's it it definitely was a surprise i, I know among the the folks that that i've been talking to as well so I, I'm not sure kind of what what led to it, but it, it sounds like it's it's just a, a financially driven decision, pretty much. Kelly, how big of a hit does Mitsubishi themselves take for this, um, as far as mindshare when it comes to the AV industry and, and just and, and beyond the AV industry? Uh, is this a black eye against them? The fact that they couldn't make this a go, and the way that they've done this, where it seems very abrupt, at least to me. Uh, does it does it give them a black eye the fact that it seems really quick and almost knee jerk to the the average con, average observer, or do you think they handle this rather well? Well, I mean, I think a lot of companies of their size are, I think they're all suffering a little bit in kind of what you had mentioned before the whole jack of all trades, master of none idea. Where, I mean, look at the bigger companies like Sony and Panasonic. I mean, even. When it, I mean, even because we're in the camera market, you know, and they've done a ton of shuffling around just with the cameras. And if you look at the companies as an overall, a lot of them are losing money. And when it comes to displays and projectors, they're not making any money off this. And there's so many different manufacturers of them. And now they're coming out just cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And it's hard to keep up. As far as, you know, just outright coming and saying, 
you know, we're done, we're not doing this anymore. You know, I, I don't, I haven't talked to anybody that had suspected that, but I think it's going to continue happening more and more with other companies just because like you said, you can't have, you know, your fingers in every piece of the pie and be successful. Yeah, you, you can't. Michael, when it comes to trying to diversify, I guess, and, and one story, I should say this, guys, one story I did here uh, unofficially was that they could not get uh, the yields off their laser line. The fact that they were having so many failures, in other words, they, they didn't get the yield that they were expecting, and that was eating into the bottom line of, of their projector line. Michael, when it comes to trying to be innovative and trying to push forward, where do you draw the line as a manufacturer? Uh, from obviously, you know, where, where do you draw the line when you say, yes, you want to be forward thinking, yes, you want to be on the cutting, bleeding edge, but you also have to uh, work with products and work with the technology that, that is solid and, and it works? I, I think that's up to each individual manufacturer to determine based on their business model and, and their method of going to business and to market. But honestly, for me, I, I'm surprised it took this long for one of the major players to pull back. Uh, I, I think it's a, a brilliant strategic move, actually, from Mitsubishi's standpoint, to be able to focus their efforts and their energies on other technologies that are going to move forward. I mean, let's face the fact, projection is on the way out. Right? I think we can all agree no. to a point, to a point in the small <gasps> to mid-sized space, in you the small to mid-sized space. Attack. I know, I know. I can, I can hear him convulsing <laughs> over there now. <laughs> But but the reality of it is it look okay projection is a, a zero margin product and and as Kelly stated you just don't make a lot of money in zero margin products it, it's there to pull along other business if you don't have that other business to bring to the table then you need to focus your efforts where the money is and like I said I'm surprised that that Mitsubishi is actually the first one so I'm waiting for others to follow suit there will be another yes shortly. There will. No, I mean, I've, like I've heard rumors already. Oh, I know. Yes. I know. Okay. You and I have spoke. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it starts with S and ends with P, and yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on. Speaking of, of dropping <laughs> out, wait, uh, wait. Let's get let's get an ambulance for Phil. Bill, you're right. Senna, so sa see. That's me trying to figure it out. Oh. Just kidding. I think I know. You well, you you are you know you are the AV professional. Uh, after a little bit more than a year, this comes to us from our buddies over at Strategy. Uh, after a little more than a year in operation, Audio Experts, a new specialty brand of audio electronics targeted at the luxury consumer market, has closed down operations. Uh, Michael, we'll kick it off with you since you're, uh, well, you're working for Sennheiser, so that's audio. Um, I don't have a good reason. That just came up. <laughs> Is this? You're the guy across the table. Let's send it to you. <laughs> You know, that's what they taught me in broadcasting school. Um, when it comes to audio, just luxury products in general, is this indicative of the economy not quite being where we are? Or did they, you know, is this just something maybe that these guys were ahead of their time and um, they weren't quite ready for prime time? What was the headline? Uh, Promising newcomer audio experts abruptly ceases operations. Sure. You're not supposed to say that word. <laughs> All right. Uh, Certainly. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't say no, definitively because there's so much more to the story, right? I mean, what's, 
you can't really get a pulse on the marketplace based on a, a headline like that. What's what's it really come down to? What were the driving factors? Did they get in over their heads? Was it the the space wasn't as ready for their products as as they thought they were? You know, we really can't say to definitively definitively what what the driving force is behind that. I think their their sugar daddy cut them off, right? And that and that's what it sounds like, right? Yeah. That may very well be. All right. Well, that's an interesting story. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Obvious, obviously, I didn't read the story. They cut, well, <laughs> they, they, they cut them off. No, I, one thing is, 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 Kelly, when it comes to trying to create something and, and build a following, th- these guys only lasted a year. That's the one thing that kind of gets me is when it comes to – because the reason I'm asking you is because, first of all, Vadio has an interesting backstory, the fact that you guys come from – another uh company and and you built um was it you're 10 years old or 11 how when yeah did, we turned 10 in 2013 is it thir- 12 or 13 they're 10 or 11 years old right and yes. <laughs> I, I, in talking with some of your your guy your your management it was like you know they they knew going in that they weren't going to be they weren't going to be, you know, breaking even a year later or two years later. So you have to have some sort of runway. You have to have a, a business plan. Um, yeah. That's what strikes me by this about this article is the fact that they were only a year old, right? Um, somebody somewhere didn't do any math or something. So I don't know. Well, and, and like I said, I mean, there's more to the story than that because anybody who's in the manufacturing or the product business knows, and, and I'm sure Kelly, you can relate to this as well. Even launching new products, unless it is just totally a game changer into the marketplace, there's ramp up time. It takes a lot of money, a lot of resources, and a lot of efforts just to get the product awareness to market, let people know that it's there, and then for the sales to follow through. So what does that cycle look like? You know, depending on the product and the industry that you're in, that could be anywhere from, you know, 6, 8, 10, 12 months up to 24, 36 months before you really start becoming profitable. That sounds very expensive. Yeah, we definitely definitely see that here at Vadio. And it's, and and Tim, like you mentioned, it's, you can't expect you know, to pull in huge numbers in your first year, somebody screwed up somewhere at the very beginning here because I mean, I just, I don't, I don't know how you could close after a year. There, there had to be something. Somebody was expecting something. Yeah. (laughs) Or like Phil said, the sugar daddy just said, yeah, I don't have the stomach for this and let's cut it now. Yeah, it was. It's. It looked like a business 101 type situation, wherein they said product delays. Uh, you know, ended up meaning that they weren't getting their products out in time, and so they had a, an agreed upon investment from one investor. And uh, and after all the delays, I think the the ownership was hoping they'd maybe get an extension or get a little little bump in collateral. And uh, and instead, the investment uh, folks decided just to shut up, shut down shop. You know, so cut your losses. What do you do? Yep. Yeah, right. cut, cut your losses exactly. Speaking of cut, you, you wonder you wonder yeah. how many of those delays there actually were before the investor pulled out. You you wouldn't think it was you know the first the first delay was the investor pulled out, or unless there was some agreement ahead of time that said you know if you miss one deadline we're we're gone. But but obviously obviously there was there was something going on there. Mm-hmm. Very strange. Uh, Very weird. This is the part of the show where we beat up on Sony um, from USA Today. Sony is getting into the curved HD TV game just in time for baseball to end. Um, that was a bad baseball joke, by the way. 
Uh, they're coming out with a 65-inch curved screen HD TV. Yay! Mine will be here by the Super Bowl. Because LG and Samsung already have one, y'all. Uh, and it's, you know, it's OLED and all that jazz. Here's the thing, though. It's $10,000 and $9,000, respectively, for the LG and the Samsung one. How much for the Sony, you ask? Anybody? How much for the Sony, How Tim? much for the Sony? Thank Tell you. us, Tim. Supposedly... Four grand. No. <gasps> Whoa. Wow. Now, here's the thing. St- Go ahead. <laughs> I still can't afford it. <laughs> well, I see. I can't either. <laughs> None of us. Can. I can't either. Um, but here's the thing. The one thing that strikes me by this is the fact that they're coming out with several SKUs of this, just because Sony's being Sony, and you know you need different ones. Um, and. It's it's less expensive than anybody else, which is also definitely un-Sony of them. Uh, Craig, is this, I mean, do we need another manufacturer to, to have a curved OLED? Are we there yet when it comes to, to this technology? Well, this one has 3D video, so I know you'll enjoy that. Thank you for that. I was actually glossing over that. I yeah, I thought you might be. I thought 3D was dead. It is. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> I thought we all decided it was dead. Just not in Boston, apparently. <laughs> Apparently not. Um, do we need another one? Um, I I don't think so. But that doesn't stop people from from making it. And that is true. Uh, we know Mitsubishi won't have one. Very nice. <laughs> very well done. Bang. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Point to I, Kelly Perkins. I thought people in Minnesota were nice. <laughs> I, you know, I was just sitting here talking yeah, up how great the days. Twin Cities is. You know, I told Tim, I said, I could move to the Twin Cities if I convinced my wife to go where it's colder. People are nice. They're great. And then, Kelly, you come out and do that. <laughs> uh, well, but, some of us have to be the anomaly. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, I actually, talked about, talk about that for a second, uh, Kelly. When it comes to the fact that it's Sony, right? And Sony has a long history of not only uh, killing products midstream, but also not exactly... Um, pulling them off rather well so how optimistic are we that this is even going to see the light of day and if it is you know it's going to work um you know i don't i don't know a ton about their display business to be honest um but i i mean as far as displays go they seem to do pretty well but they always they always seem more expensive so i don't know i don't I don't know a lot about their display business. <laughs> Sorry. I thought they were losing a ton of money on the Bravia for some reason. They were. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, is what that gets right? me. Were they? Yeah. Well, maybe this I is our so. attempt to make that up. Yeah. Curvy TVs. That's what we need more of. Curvy TVs. I don't know. Yeah. Well, didn't they lose something ridiculous like $10 billion or something last year? Yeah. And that was just on PS4 promotion, so... Wow. No, not, not really, because the PS4 comes out this year. So. But yes, they want... Well, maybe, want maybe, maybe they're trying something new. <laughs> well, good luck, Sony. All right, um, moving on. This comes from from uh, electron, Electrical Contractor, and I, I kind of actually wish that, that my buddy Matt Scott was on, because this, he would be, this would be right up his alley. The right light color tuning is color tuning the new dimming. Did you guys read this article? I know you didn't, Michael. <laughs> um, here's what's interesting about it. it. It's from EC Magazine. And 
it talks about changing and, and manipulating the color temperature of your room. So in other words, instead of dimming, you're changing the, um, the light source, balancing red, green, and blue at the, at the different wavelengths. And so your dimmer on the wall is not necessarily changing the brightness level, the lumens level of the room. It's actually changing the color temperature of the light itself. Uh, Phil, is this, I mean, I'll ask the same question that the article asks, is color tuning the new dimming when it comes to um, pro or, or residential AV? Uh, I think that remains to be seen. I think it's certainly something else that people can sell. You know, we can sell it to the customers as the next dimming, if you will, but I am more concerned about the psychological implications. I don't know what these different colors mean or what they're telling my body to do, you know? <laughs> And, and it, they get through my tinfoil hat, and, and oh, they just—they make me feel it. funny. And I'm just saying, I don't know what—I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> no, but you know, there there is some. I know that that colors have significance, and and uh, and I think it could be a breakthrough in retail spaces uh, where it makes people feel more comfortable, perhaps with uh, with making purchases or uh, or more comfortable in business situations, anything of that nature. But you know. I think it's yet to be seen if this is the next big uh, revenue stream for us in the commercial world, you know? Well, then that goes on to the commercial integrator, uh, editor at large, Mr. Uh, Mr. McCormick. Is this something where the guys that you talk to could, could sink their teeth into? I, I could see, you know, some, some interest in it. I, I haven't heard of any interest in it. This is the first I've heard anything about it being, you know, the next big thing or the, the new dimming or anything like that. I, it's not, not something that anyone has ever brought up to me and it's not anything I've, I've talked to anybody about, but it's, it's an interesting topic. I'm not, I'm not sure necessarily it's, it's a factual sort of thing, but it's, it's an interesting idea, I guess. I, I, th I think it's at least somewhat interesting, especially when it comes to uh, residential areas where you can, you know, again, it's another, it's another, another revenue stream. And when it comes to programming, now you can have a really cool feedback where uh, you can you can control the color temperature of your of your lights and have it feedback onto your touch panel. So, I can tell you that I would love to have a remote control device to adjust both intensity and color temperature for my office, depending on my mood. That would Ooh. actually be awesome, really. I think that would be really cool. Because <laughs> think about it, you know, you want to dim the lights, you want to feel a little warmer, dinner, whatever the case may be, you know, or it's hey, I just want to. I want dimmer lights for whatever reason. That warmer temperature. And if it could read your mood and change accordingly. But but if you think about well, it, this isn't like that different. Ring. There yes. you go. Exactly. This isn't that so different is, from what it. dimming actually does, though. You know, in an incandescent world, uh, when you dim lights, you are changing color temperature as you're lowering intensity. You are. What we're doing is we're eliminating the intensity piece of that. Yes. And maintaining color temperature. So the great thing is you can change mood while maintaining ambient light. Not yeah. ambient, but light level. Light level, yeah. Yeah, but I don't really want to walk in everywhere and have it feel like the Babylon Club in Scarface, you know? Why not? Like, I, don't that, I don't need that feeling to feel cool about, about life, you know? <laughs> so so what you're saying is you're a 65 Kelvin do. guy. <laughs> I, I'm 65K have... all the way, man. I have no idea what you just said. Uh, <laughs> Kelly wants the 35. You know what? It's the sleep number bed for lighting. What's your number? Oh, it totally is. <laughs> what's your number? Are you a 35K or a 65K? I have lost Well, it depends control. on if I'm in the grocery store or if I'm at home, what time it but is. But maybe it's a 56K. <laughs> That's a modem. Moving on. All right. You're listening to AV Week. Thank you for still listening. If you are, 
If you are, you're probably related to me in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> Kelly Perkins is here, Market and Communications Manager from Vadio. Philip Hi-Fi Cordell, the AB professional. Craig McCormick uh, from Commercial Integrator, and Michael Drainer does something with Sennheiser. Speaking of... <laughs> we pursue perfect sound. You looked that up, didn't you? I'm in a mood today. Julie Jacobson uh, is a uh, is, does a whole lot for CE Pro. Wrote an inter- interesting article the other day, and I'm going to kick this off with both Miss Perkins and uh, Mr. Drainer because they're both manufacturers. Question is this: What if which her specific question is what if CE products were free? My question to you is what if your products were free? Uh, and the idea behind that is we are quickly becoming a more service-oriented industry. Yes, we still sell products. Yes, you can buy a 128 by 128 DM matrix switcher for, you know, the government, I guess, be the only person that can afford that monster sucker. Um, But when it comes to microphones or cameras and switchers and stuff like that, projectors is one of the things that that all of us have been talking about for over a year now, the fact that they are becoming more and more commoditized. When it comes to our products and your products specifically, um, does it make sense, I guess? Or what if your products, instead of getting the revenue and making money off of selling the product, you made it on the other end and sold services or sold uh, configuration or sold something to where almost where the, the, the products themselves did not have a quote unquote bottom line value? Um, Michael, we'll start with you. If, when it comes to mi- microphones uh, or um, speaker systems with the K arrays, you know where uh, Sennheiser themselves they, they don't sell the actual systems, but they sell the configuration, this, that, and the other. Does that lessen the value of of the equipment, or maybe does it lessen the value of the name Sennheiser? That's a good question. I don't think it lessens the value of the name. Okay. Um, I, I don't think it. I don't think it cheapens it by any way, shape, or form. Um, yeah, it, it's an interesting hypothesis to, to consider when you look at the at the rest of the consumer marketplace. This is something that's carried out throughout multiple industries, whether it's IT, personal protection services, uh, fire security, you name it. A lot of times, products themselves are subsidized through services. So mm-hmm. this is nothing new. It's not a new concept. The question is. In, your, in a particular industry segment, whatever the manufacturer may be, what is your real goal as a manufacturer? And are do you have services to augment or to replace the loss of revenue from the product sales themselves? The great thing is, and, and not, to, not to get onto a sales pitch here, but with our products, they're so intuitive it, it doesn't really make sense to sell services to configure them. You know, we, our whole goal is to make it easy. You buy the product once and away you go. Um, now, other products are much more complicated and require those ongoing services depending on what industry segment you're in. Think about um, cloud computing services and data center services, things along those lines. So I think for certain manufacturers, that model does make sense, but it doesn't necessarily make sense in every industry segment and every manufacturer. Specifically, the one that Julie writes about is is a cloud-based um, home automation system. Absolutely, and and that is one thing where I could definitely see where the 
the hardware could cost of the hardware can be offset by by services. Yeah, and, and people do that all the time. I mean, you think about your home security system. You know, it, it doesn't matter who the service provider is. A lot of times they'll offer uh, free product or installation for ninety nine dollars, yeah. and that's it. You just commit to a service contract for the monitoring services, and they subsidize the product accordingly. It works in certain segments, and in in a cloud-based environment, of of course it makes sense because the products aren't that terribly expensive. The engineering behind them isn't too costly. It's easy to deploy, and the value to the consumer is the remote management, monitoring, and the maintenance of those things. Kelly, when it comes to – Kelly is also one of our hosts of our AV Social Show. So from a marketing standpoint and social standpoint, does it lessen the value of of the name uh, if you're – giving away or virtually giving away the, the products for free? You know, it really, on one hand, I think it's brilliant because you're getting that recurring revenue. And if you have a service where you can make recurring revenue and you can plan on and sign on contracts and, you know, keep it going for years to come, I think it's, I think it's completely worth it. But as a specific manufacturer, I mean, kind of like Michael said, it's very, if if you're not selling a like a cloud service or you're not selling something that involves contract or you know software for a service it's i think it i think to an extent it does lessen the value of the product um because the manufacturer has to make money but at the same time you know what's what's the service i mean for example you know what what we try and do at vadio a lot of the time is we sell our technical support. We sell, you know, we have we have live people on the phones. We have, you know, warranties. We have advanced replacement. You know, those are services that, that we're selling along with the actual product. So we feel that, you know, the products are that valuable. But it really depends on, you know, what, what the companies can offer. And it's, it is, again, different with consumer products versus commercial products. Oh, yeah. I think... But I mean, I think I think if you can do it, I think it's it's the way the industry the industry is going, and I think it's I think it's I think it's great, and I think it's really. I, mean, I think well, it also I, comes down to the nature of your product too, right? Is it something that's yeah. going to be installed into an environment, and it's a one-time capital cost? You know, because you think both Kelly and I's products they they're used very heavily in house of worship, commercial mm-hmm. applications, education. And a lot of times those budgets don't allow for ongoing recurring service fees when it comes to technology and um, uh, infrastructure upgrades and things like that. It's much easier for them to come up with a capital budget. We make this investment once. We refresh it every three, five, ten years. It's something that can be planned out. It's much harder for organizations like that to to budget for ongoing monthly or annual recurring fees. And, and this has just been in my conversations as a previous integrator. We would sell service contracts, right? Service contracts a lot of times are paid out of a different budget. Ongoing things are paid out of a different budget. Capital investment funding comes from a whole different source in a lot of these organizations. So, yeah. you know, a lot of that depends on your customer base, who you're going after. When you're talking about consumer and home automation, that's a whole different story. Families look at things a little bit differently. A lot of times, a family will jump on board and pay $90, $100, $150 a month for cable TV service or satellite service and not blink an eye. But you say, hey, go pay $200 and buy this widget. Oh, wait a minute. Let me think about that. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit different. Is some, of it, also the, is some of it also the, the bottom line price of what it costs you guys to manufacture it? Because let's be honest, I mean, whether it's, you know, um, this this uh, home-based, cloud-based uh, automation system, uh, you compare that to an AMX, 
processor, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the, the cost will be vastly different. I mean, AMX has no business. I shouldn't say that's it's their business. They do what they want. But when you when you compare the cost of that hardware versus the cost of this of this cloud based hardware, hardware, the cost is probably different by several thousand dollars. And so the return on, on investment from AMX's side or Crestron or, or, or whoever, um, that return on investment time is going to be far the, the, the greater. The ROA horizon is much further out yeah. is, is what it is. But, but it's bigger than that, too. It's also the economies of scale. Right. So as you grow these services, the economies of scale start to kick in because they can capitalize on the core infrastructure back at their data center to manage all of this. It's not necessarily processing power that's out at every remote site. They're able to offload some of that back to their host location, which allows them to scale that much greater, much more cost effectively. So again, it comes back to the customer. In the corporate environment, they need the local reliability. They need the ability to make sure that that processor's online all the time. They want to manage it. Mm -hmm. You know, the needs are vastly different from the home user. The home user can get up off the couch and go flip the switch if the processor's not working. That's not acceptable in the executive boardroom. No, that's true. Uh, and there's always ahead, say, there are always opportunities to to maybe integrate some some I hate to say more quality products in those situations, but you know you, perhaps they go with the the I rule control, but go with a you know a, a top tier uh, projector or uh, or flat panel or something. <laughs> and I can tell you in, on the commercial side, we're getting tons of requests for Skype. Can you can you integrate Skype? Can we do Skype? You know, and we would much rather sell a, a Cisco or a Polycom codec. But thankfully, there are products like, shameless plug here for you, Kelly, like uh, Vadio's AV Bridge, <laughs> you know, the AV Bridge that allows us to, to bring in some, some pro, you know, top, top-notch top equipment and integrate it into a, 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 a less expensive platform, uh, which is kind of, you know, kind of like I rule. Well, you know, and, and is, Phil, when it comes to, I was, one question I was going to ask you is, is, which would you rather sell? Would you rather sell... Hardware once, or would you rather, like Michael said, sell a service contract or a, a support contract uh, for something that you virtually give away for free? Oh, that's a great question, man. Um, in my day job, I, I was just over the engineering department and have picked up the service department within the past few months as well. And uh, and I've got to say, without a doubt, that I would prefer to have uh, our techs in front of the customer more frequently, you know, on a more frequent basis, because you're nurturing that relationship. Uh, you know, you're looking out for equipment that could possibly be faulty, and uh, and it's you know, revenue stream that is you know you're under contract that will be spread out hopefully for years to come, you know, and hopefully they see you frequently enough and and find value in that service. Uh, so I I would take a you know an extended service contract, uh, also because you know the cost on our end is is generally. Uh, pretty reasonable, you know, in, in terms of, of markup on a service contract versus markup on a piece of equipment. Uh, and I thought that that last sentence that uh, that she summed up the whole article with, the cost of the product or service should not dictate the price that integrators charge. Uh, you know, I thought that was that was pretty right on as well because, mm-hmm. you know, it 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 fails or it falls on our uh, on the salesperson to uh, to kind of get out there and, and sell the value. Of not only the service contract, but but perhaps the equipment, you know, the the quality equipment that we generally push for uh, on the front end of an installation. Well, and I think you're 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 seeing more and more of this in the marketplace as margins are dwindling on product and more products that are hitting market are created equal, if you will. Um, and, and that's not entirely the case, but from the consumer perspective, yeah. they look at two displays. It's like, what's the difference? This one's cheaper, but they look, both look good to me. 
but you and I are going to look at it and we're going to be comparing, you know, refresh rates and we want to know color depth and we want to know a whole lot more about the display. The consumer isn't looking at it on that level. So it really does come down to the added value that comes to the table and, and the margins on those products, because they are so slim, the only way to actually make a profit in that space is by selling those services. Craig, you you talked with a lot, with a lot of integrators when it comes when you in in your job as a commercial integrator. Yep. How have have these uh, have the the integrators that you talk to started making this switch, or have they? I mean, are they are they successfully doing the contracts, the service contracts, and the support contracts? Or are they still relying on on the uh, the hardware sales? There are definitely some that are still relying on the the hardwares, but um, some. A lot of the the bigger companies and and the ones that are, I guess, ahead of the curve for lack lack of a better term, um, are are definitely you know focusing a lot more on the the sales and the service department, um, at the the service contracts. Uh, they're they're finding that that's that's kind of where the real value is. Um, I, I think uh, Phil was the one that mentioned you know kind of being in front of the the client a lot more often and you know kind of you know touching base with them. Whereas if you you know, in, especially in the commercial space, if you sell them a product and, you know, you don't have to check in with them, you know, for another whatever, five or 10 years, you know, once, once the installation's done. So, so if you, if you have that, you know, that, that service contract and, you know, you're, you're touching base with them every, you know, few months or, or whatever the case may be, then, you know, then there's even an opportunity to, you know, sell more products and, and do more with them and, you know, maybe talk about new projects with them, that, that sort of thing. So I, I think it's definitely going, you know, more towards the, the, the service contracts um, for, for, uh, for commercial and, and, and for residential as well. Yeah, and, and I agree with, with that 100%. I, and, but I, I think the thing that you're getting at, Tim, is are you able to subsidize the capital cost of the equipment? Yeah. And in commercial integration, the cost of the gear is so substantial, you can't subsidize it 100%. You're going to have to at least yeah. break even on your cost, and you're going to make up your margin in services. So what, what you're talking about, though, with the, the Julie's article is, hey, the, the gear is free. Right? Virtually, virtually, virtually free for, you know, to the end user. And so that's a unique situation that in the commercial space, when you're talking, you know, half million, three quarter million, million dollar systems, that's just not a practical expectation to be able to do that. Right. C- certainly this works a lot better in the, the residential space than commercial space okay. at, at this point. But I'm, I'm curious because I, again, my, my finite brain and, and my finite processing power, I think it could. And, and here's here's how I, I think it can. First of all, you have um, you, you do take a hit on the actual product, but you go into there, you go into like you know a request for a proposal or, or a RFP or a, a bid opening uh, meeting as an integrator, um, and you've worked with a consultant or work what have you, and say, look, here's the product that we're going to give you, and, and it's it's everything that's in the spec and this that and the other. It's everything that's in the scope of work. Um, but to offset costs, we're going to slash our prices by X amount of dollars and then do a service contract. Does that not make sense or am I but simplifying it, but, it? But it's more than that, right? Because there's a cost for those services as yeah. well. So that's the upsell. The upsell is that, hey, you know, you, you do your business with us. Yeah, we're going to give you a lower cost on the gear. We're going to do the service contractor and you're selling value, right? 
that that's really what it comes down to. You're convincing the, the end user that I bring more to the table than the competition does. Here's why. This is the services that I offer. This is why you're going to have peace of mind in what we're delivering to you. So it's worth the extra money. It's worth the recurring cost because you still have to amortize that capital investment one way or another over the term of that contract. Yeah. So the bigger that system is, the bigger that amortized cost is going to be on, an, on a monthly, annual basis, whatever it is. So... You, you just, in the commercial environment, yes, service contracts do bring a tremendous amount of value. And we've got a lot of integrators here in the area um, that provide service contracts and do a great job selling that, but they still have to cover the cost of the gear to do that. And I don't know any corporation that is going to be able to, to, now, let me back up. You can bundle in lease agreements and things like that yeah. into that, but you're not going to be able to do it on service contracts alone. Okay. That, that makes sense. That, that's valid. So. All right, guys. Uh, a couple more stories, and then I'll let you guys go on a beautiful Friday afternoon. Uh, this comes from Craig's very, very magazine, Commercial Integrator. <laughs> the end of the sales pro. Michael, pack your bags. Uh, <laughs> That's why I can't give my products away for free. I won't have a job. <laughs> um, here's the thing, and this is by a guy by the name of Daniel Newman. Is he a nice guy, Craig? He is. Okay, there you go. Because uh, there's any other answer, <laughs> yes. he, could, he could say he's a jerk. What, what, what was I supposed to say to the, that? The guy, the guy might be a Yankee fan for all I know, you know, and that uh, would make him. No, a, he's White Sox. Oh, oh there we go. I'm and, sorry. Yeah, so, so we feel bad for him. So we, do. Okay. we do. We um, do. He writes uh, about how you've got salespeople making, first of all, two or three times more than engineers, which is just ridiculous, uh, and then you have the internet shopper right this is the person who googles everything that they want or they google you know or they take your what's it, what's the best thing is it is to take uh, an integrator's um bid and then google every product and try to get it for cheaper that's really fun because it really mm -hmm. makes them happy um <laughs> being sarcastic but you've got a situation where everybody quote unquote knows everything about your industry and about what you can sell them and give them um, so Craig, we'll, we'll actually, we'll kick it off with you. Um, we're, I, I don't think that we're in, and obviously, you know, Daniel doesn't either. We're not in at the end of the, of the sales pro, but where are we going with it comes to the salesperson or for the commercial integration space? Um, what, what will the, what will this person look like in, in five or 10 years? Yeah, I think I think he used the word evolution some somewhere in there uh, about um, you know what the the sales pro is is going through right now and uh, uh, you know kind of the the point of you know there's a lot more information out there for for the average consumer to look up and you know kind of ha have have all the information they need ready when when the sales sales guy walks through the door trying to you know sell sell them this or that I I I think maybe it's it's harder to you know, pull pull one over on a customer than than maybe it used to be, and um, it's it's really about you know kind of forming those relationships. That's what everybody always talks about is you know building relationships, building trust with with customers, and and you know kind of it, getting them you know to to understand and realize you know the that you know what what you're you're trying to bring to the table as a sales professional is is what they need and and you know listening to what they listening to what they they want and you know how, how they kind of want to get there so i i think it's it's changing in that in that sort of way so michael you used to be a, a commercial integrator salesperson uh where do you see it going in the next three, 
you know, five to 10 years. I think this is right on actually. So I, I started in this industry as a technician and engineering and design and sales. And so, you know, right up, right up through the line. And what's interesting is the role really hasn't changed that much for me coming through all those different well, I positions. I mean, I mean, really, and, and you know, you think sales, right? You, you go on site and you're convincing somebody to use your products and services. And, and although that's a part of the role, the message here is that it's really coming down to customer service. And I'm finding every day that my role is more and more customer service. I'm the guy on site. I'm the one that's touching the customer. Not on the shoulder, though, Phil. Um, Good. Yeah. <laughs> will not be huddling. Right. No huddling going on here. Um, but, but you know, the salesperson is the one that's engaging with that customer on a day-to-day basis that's on site, that's doing the trainings, that's conducting the seminars, that's going through those events. And it really is becoming more and more of a service-oriented organization, especially as companies are running on leaner and leaner staff mm-hmm. back at the corporate headquarters or in the support roles that, that we're t- used to seeing, more and more is being left to the salesperson in the field to carry out those duties. So I do believe we're seeing that transition and it's something that's going to continue to happen. Uh, Kelly, actually, I want to take off on something Michael just said. Uh, when it comes to you know, being the, the, the connection point for the customer, as manufacturers, though, where do you guys come in to help support not just the salesperson, but also the end user. Uh, because the more that they know about your product and the more they understand about your product, the more likely they are going to be to, to use it and uh, and to put it in their systems. So what was the question? Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Where do you guys come in when it comes to <laughs> kind of supporting the salesperson? Okay, where do we come in? Well, I, you know, it's it's, you know, we do we try and do as much as we can to get them as much information as possible to get them the collateral the support that they need i mean i think i think a big thing is is just that you know there's there's the age-old adage of just having somebody to call somebody to talk Mm -hmm. to if something goes wrong if they have a question if they need more information i mean as opposed to looking something up on Google or, you know, buying something from, you know, an Amazon shop or whatnot, it's, if something goes wrong, who do you call? What do you, what do you do? There's only so much you can Google. There's only so much information where, you know, sooner or later you're going to run into a black hole and you're stuck with, you're stuck with a black box that you don't know what to do with. And I think, you know, providing people help and support from the very beginning, you know, guiding them through, helping them you know, prepare their designs, you know, giving them, you know, honest information, you know, the best, the best product for whatever design they're doing, whether it's a a church or a school or whatnot, and following it all the way through to the end, like I said, of having good technical support and helping them out if something goes wrong. Uh, Phil, when it comes to your position as, you know, um, in, in Nashville there with M3, where do you see the role of salesperson going in the next five or ten years? Uh, you know, I thought the article was really interesting, really, uh, really well written, but but it wasn't totally news to me. I mean, in terms of sales, I, it, it just seems like nurturing relationships has always and will always be uh, the, the number one thing that you're there for, you know. And, and yes, the technical uh, know-how is very important because we're trusted advisors, but if the only time you're – talking to your customers when they call you for a quote or something 
then you probably need to up your sales game, homie. You know, that's that's just all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, it's all about reaching out and making sure that they know they're that they're being taken care of. Uh, and it's not just AV that this is happening. This is happening across all markets. Everybody's going to the internet. You know, if you're selling cars, if you're selling home appliances, whatever you're selling, you can expect that people have already hopped online and looked at what they'd pay at Amazon for it, you know? So they come to us or to the sales professional uh, for that next level of, of knowledge and maybe experience with the product, you know? Uh, and so I, I think that it's just as important as ever to uh, to inter interact and engage with your customers. And I mean, if, again, if we're just sitting there waiting for the phone to ring, uh, then, then we're going to have problems. We are. We're going to be out of jobs because people will uh, will either start picking stuff off the internet or they'll go to people who, who pay them more attention, you know? No. And uh, and it's it's interesting that, that it was mentioned about tech support because, you know, there's a, a, I can tell a couple different types of customers and there's the ones who have, you know, they call me when anything happens and they're, and they're cool because they know that we'll take care of it or the ones that call totally freaking out because they've already scoured the internet and they can't figure it out and they don't know that it can even be fixed, you know? It's like, well consult a professional you know and we'll we'll come over and and, and take care of it you know yeah. and and phil and kelly both and i understand that the perspective is a little different kelly and i come up from manufacturing and phil you've on the on the integration side but I, I think what i'm seeing in the industry across the board is that salespeople have to be more technically adept in their products and not only their specific uh, product and product segment, but also how that integrates and plays with other products within the integration. And so it's not just, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm taking care of your customer service and I'm taking care of your sales. And yeah, we got this great tech team, but I'm finding that more and more salespeople have to be that subject matter expert as well in the field. Absolutely. And yeah, so it, it helps. It's, it's no longer just good enough to take your engineer with you, no. you know, or or to hang on, let me forward you over to my engineer. I think it goes a long way if the salesperson can speak knowledgeably about the product that they're trying to sell, for sure. And that goes. This this comes from a, from the education standpoint. That goes for not only your commercial your integrator rep. That goes for your manufacturer's rep as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. If, you know, I've, I I have the world's worst rep story, and I won't say what. Be nice. What company that they still <laughs> work for for some godforsaken Surprisingly. reason. Um, I think they have pictures of somebody in a compromising position, but I mean, this person was, you know, as, as worthless as, you know, a mud pie to a starving man. I mean, it was not, this person is not a good representative of the company or the industry in any way, shape or form. Um, I think I physically saw them and talked to them twice in the two years that they were my rep. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I called other people in the company to get problems solved. So, yeah, that goes for not only integrator uh, salespeople, but also manufacturer salespeople. I'm looking at you, Michael. Um, you know, you know you're know, you not the rep, but... Oh, okay. but I, I was just checking. No, no, you're, I wasn't you're sure. a salesperson. All right, uh, <laughs> last but not least, uh, this is more of a personal slash, you know, uh, AV Nation shout-out, go team type thing. Uh, our old buddy Sam Malik, uh, who was the VP and GM of Sanyo uh, before they got gobbled up into Panasonic, has a new uh, gig at a new, sort of new, projector company. Uh, Sam is the Vice President and General Manager of Sales and Marketing for ASK Proxima. Um, some of you may remember ASK Proxima. They were around a few years ago, and now they're coming back. So, I don't know. It's, it'll be an interesting story to watch. Um, does Phil, did you ever deal with Proxima at all? Uh, I'd never had a lot of experience with Proxima mm -hmm. products, no. 
It's not to say that they're not quality products. No, no, no. I, I have no idea. Yeah. I've, I, we've taken some out uh, in the last few years because, you know, they stopped making them. But I don't know. Right. It'll be interesting. Um, I talked with him on the phone a couple days ago. He was actually supposed to be on this call, and we had some, some technical difficulties, as it were. Um, and he's very excited. Um, he, he's trying to get the word out about about their, you know, ASK and, and Proxima uh, and, and everything. So uh, it, good for him. So. Uh, all right, guys, that's going to do it for uh, for us and for this week. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. First and foremost, uh, the lovely and talented Ms. Kelly Perkins. She's the marketing and communications manager for Vadio, but she also helps us out here with a show called uh, AV Social. So check that out if you would. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. And where can people find you and Vadio? You can find me at Vadio underscore Kelly or at Vadio underscore Kelly or at Vadio on Twitter on the old Twitter. Uh, Philip Hi-Fi Cordell, the AV professional. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me, Tim. Enjoyed oh. it as always, man. And where can people find you and your uh, your wonderful uh, musical raps and videos? Yeah, man, you can find me on theavprofessional.com or on YouTube at youtube.com backslash high fidelity with a PH and on Twitter, of course, at the underscore AV underscore pro. He has a PH and high fidelity, Michael. Um, he just needs a D after that. Uh, Craig McCormick is the editor at large um, with Commercial Integrator and my favorite Boston Red Sox fan. Thank you, sir. Am I your only <laughs> Boston Red Sox fan you like? Actually, no. Are there many Red Sox fans? Oh, there's there's tons of them. What? At least a dozen or so. <laughs> a dozen. Um, yeah. No, uh, the 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 college I work for, um, the uh, the president and his wife are from Boston, so. Uh, it's it's been an an, inter- an interesting playoff. So, but they uh, but you well, you're that, my favorite. That should that should make for a fun week for you next. Oh week, my goodness, yes. Uh, but he works for Commercial Integrator. How can people find you? Uh, commercialintegrator.com and on Twitter at Craig McCormick. All right. Uh, last but not least, Jeez. <laughs> if 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 it happens and and we have a a repeat of the series in 2004. Um, I will hijack you for next week, and we'll we'll make some sort of, of ill-conceived bet. Is that a deal? Sounds like sounds like a good idea. All right, uh, Michael Drainer, he's my buddy, he's my pal, but he's also my microphone guy. Uh, he uh, works for Sennheiser USA as their Midwest Integrated uh, Systems Sales Representative, Sales Manager, Sales Manager. Yeah. Yeah. Who do you manage? Sales. Oh, <laughs> where where can people find you, sir? <laughs> on Twitter at Michael Drainer, also SennheiserUSA.com, and my personal blog, which hasn't been updated since last November, uh, MichaelDrainer.com. Don't mention it. <laughs> uh, I'm working on it. I just sent you an article the other day. My, it was very good. Yeah. It was very good. My blog, however, has been updated every week since the first uh, week of January. I've written a blog every week. I'm actually proud of myself. So I'm, I'm, I'm almost there. I, I told myself I'd do it for a year. So we'll see. Uh, this hard. week, actually, it's very hard. Holy cow, are you kidding me? Uh, some weeks you're like, uh, what am I going to write? This week, actually, I'm going to take um, the uh, conversation that's been happening on LinkedIn <laughs> based on last week, one of last week's articles. Uh, it's probably one of the most commented on uh, our, our LinkedIn uh, comments that we've had uh, for quite a while, and it's where uh, when AMX and or Crestron will stop making touch panels. And it's been some interesting conversations, so I'm going to take some quotes from that, and, and that's going to be this week's blog. So 
Uh, but to see that blog, to see, to hear this uh, this podcast, um, and to hear others like AV Social, The Live Life, The Education Show, Our Control Show, go by the website, if you would, please, avnation.tv, avnation.tv. Uh, it's a little dusty because they're, they're in the middle of reconstructing it, but uh, it will be better and and cleaner, and there's going to be video and all of this other wonderful stuff eventually. So, avnation.tv, avnation.tv. Thanks so much for listening. That's all the time we have for AV Week.